to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That is page 1027 if you're using our pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible that you yourself can read, that's our gift to you. But we're asking you to turn there. Today we're going to be talking about grace and generosity and how the two naturally go together. How they're just, they partner together and it's just, it's impossible really to separate them because grace is a picture of God's generosity to us as His people. And, and we are meant to be good stewards of that grace. A steward is someone who handles something entrusted to them with care and with duty. They understand that this is something that is precious, but it's also something that is serious, that I'm meant to do what I am told with it. And I love this quote from William H. Howe. It says, all that we have is thine alone. A trust, O Lord, from thee. That everything we possess, we need to have this viewpoint that everything that we've been given is comes from God. It, we may feel like we've earned something, but the life that we breathe, the very heartbeat that's in our chest, everything that we have is really a trust that God's placed into our hands for his glory, but it also brings about our good. Now, many times when we think about a trust, when we think about being stewards, when we talk about grace and generosity, obviously, the big question comes up, or the big concern. You're going to be talking about money today. And everybody loves when the preacher talks about money. Right? They love it. Either it's that, oh, they're going to try to guilt me today, or there's just going to be this slick, smoothy presentation that somebody's trying to line their pockets, and it just feels icky. And I understand those those uh, those concerns. It concerns me because I know that money is such a touchy subject for so many. But that's precisely why we need to address it because money is one of the easiest things for us to end up loving and become an idol and pretend that it really all belongs to us when everything, which includes your money, really belongs to God. A preacher once said that the Scripture talks about money very much because it's a great instrument for measuring the level of our worship. And that's because money in itself, it's, it's like a measuring stick. It's an inanimate object. It's neither good nor bad. It, it's not moral. But like anything, it can be misused. Anything that is good or moral, I mean, good, neither good or bad, that's neutral, it can still be misused. And you see, money is that object that is in that moral neutral zone. But mankind isn't. See, mankind is different from money because we can be good or bad. We are not morally neutral. And so the, what we do with our hands, what we place our heart's trust in, what we focus on with our minds, it says a lot about who we are in the middle of that. Jesus talked about this idea of our heart and our treasure being so close. And he says, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. There, there it will be. Jesus also shared with us um, an account of a man or a response of a man. The Gospel of Luke presents this story um, from Luke chapter 19 where a, a man's heart is changed around how he deals with his finances. Luke chapter 19, of course, is the story about a, a, a wee little man, and a wee little man was he named Zacchaeus, 
who climbed up in a sycamore tree to see Jesus as he was passing by through the city of Jericho. Now Jericho uh, was a city that Jesus was, was visiting for several days and Zacchaeus was a resident there, but he was not just any resident and he was not just a wee little man resident. He was also the chief tax collector. And not only was he a chief tax collector, but the man was apparently a crook. And some people are like, well, how do you assume that? Well, he said, if I have extorted anything from anybody, I'm going to pay it back. So in other words, I've extorted something from people, so I'm going to pay it back. But there's this moment where Jesus goes to lodge with Zacchaeus. He goes to have dinner with him. But in essence, I'm going to lodge at your house. According to the Hebrew custom, I'm going to have dinner. I'm going to stay at your place. And all this commotion is going on. But in the middle of it, Zacchaeus, you see this striking difference in his life, apparently, from who he used to be. Because Jesus talks about the contrast of his life. And he tells Jesus this scenario, based on his trust in Jesus, this is what he's going to do. This complete reversal when it comes to his finances. He says, I'm going to give away 50% of my wealth. Half of it. Click off. It's gone. It's, it's, it's given away to the poor. All of it. I mean, 50%. That's a pretty big deal. Imagine if you just said, you know what, Jesus? Today I'm going to give 50% of my wealth away. That'd be a big decision. I mean, most of us kind of, we kind of tightened up a little bit then, didn't we? Just thinking about it. But this is what he decided based on his conversation with Jesus. And then out of the remaining 50%, he pledged to make restitution of four times the amounts that he may have extorted. In, in other words, he's willing to place the balance of his financial treasure and possessions and status in jeopardy after encountering Jesus. And Jesus doesn't mix words. He says, today salvation has come to this house. He too is a child of Abraham. And, and Jesus points and says, this is a symbol of, of this mansion, Ross, and it reflects me, that I, as the Son of Man, have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And as Paul is going to expound a little bit later, that Jesus was willing to leave the riches of heaven to come to the poverty of earth to bring us the riches of heaven. So what we witness about money, we're going to get to the text, I promise you. I I just know that when we talk about money, I need to set the stage just right. Not because I'm trying to be slick, but because it's a very deep heart issue. It's a very serious and theological issue. It talks about how we reflect God. How we trust and worship Him. How we obey Him with our time and talent and treasure. You know, like I said, the Bible, the, the Bible, here's the one thing about the Bible. It does not call money evil. It presents money as a morally neutral thing. It doesn't forbid the possessing of money. In fact, it teaches us that the Lord, your God, gives you the power to gain wealth. That God gives us that ability. And that God has provided us with all things to enjoy. This is from Deuteronomy 8 and 1 Timothy 6.17. But the Bible does, however, warn us about something. Not the evil of money, but the evil of the love of money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it says, The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money is the root of all evil. The love is of money is the root of all evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It warns us not to set our hopes on such resources with arrogance. In 6.17 of the same chapter, for, uh, 1 Timothy, he says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant um, or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. But on God, it does tell us that wealth can be an uncertain thing. But God is not uncertain. You see, the Scripture is is replete. It's full of all these examples and instructions on money. We see Solomon's teaching on money that to put our, 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 our pleasures and our foundation in, 
in, uh, in possessions is, is foolish. It's vanity. We see Achan, a man in the book of Joshua, chapter 7, his disobedience to, uh, to um, make himself more wealthy by stealing that which God told him not to touch. And it brought utter punishment on a nation and even further on his family. We see Balaam's greed that God had to speak through the, the opening of the mouth of a donkey to correct, try to correct him. And yet he still was foolish. We see Delilah's treachery. I believe Delilah did love Samson, but she loved that bling bling a little bit more. And she sold him off. We see Judas Iscariot's betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We see Ananias and Sapphira's duplicity when they see someone else giving this Barnabas in chapter 4. He he sold off his land and he laid the proceeds at the disciples' feet. Well, they had some land they sold it, but they said, we're going to say we sold it for this much, but we're going to keep the above that money. And they lie to God. And we see these examples as warnings and insight to us. And the Bible also reveals the problems of loving money for people as they, like in Deuteronomy chapter 8, they forget to trust God. In Mark chapter 4, they become deceived. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, they compromise their convictions and they embody pridefulness. In Malachi chapter 3, they steal from God. In, in 1 John 3.17, they, they ignore the plight of others. In Exodus 20, the warning is not to pursue it through illegitimate means. We see people commit fraud like they did in Hosea and Amos and Micah. We see they're committing usury, which that's a word nobody usually uses anymore, usury, but it being a land shark, saying, I'm going I'm to ingratiate myself, I'm going to make myself wealthy off the backs of others in a very non-wise, non-scrupulous way. So the Bible has a lot of warnings about it. But the Bible also has other things to say that are good about money. It says that we are to have these honorable, acceptable ways of acquiring it. That it's not a bad thing to have it. But how you gain it and how you use it does reflect something about yourself. That if you are to um, have it by receiving gifts, as in Acts chapter 20 or Philippians 4, or by wise investments, as in Matthew 25, or by wise savings, like Proverbs 21, or wise planning, like Proverbs 27, or wise labor, like Exodus 20, or Ephesians 4, all these different examples, these are great ways of having it. And if you want to have it, you can even spend it. That's a good thing, because like I like to spend money. My wife will tell you that. I do. And, and sometimes I get a little careless, and I, I'll be honest, that's, that's me. I, I try to be better, but yeah. That's not an excuse, but I'm just being transparent. But the Bible says there are wise guidelines for spending money when you provide for the needs of your household. But you're never to neglect that. That's 1 Timothy 5. When you pay off your debts, that's Romans 13. When you save it with wisdom and virtue for the future that God has for you, Proverbs 21. When you give it graciously, obediently, and worshipfully, as we're going to see here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And see, when we misuse what the Bible has said about money in regards to it, here's the problem we often find ourselves. Those that violate God's direction on our resources and direction as stewards, we find ourselves running out of time. We find ourselves not able to demonstrate our talent. We find ourselves not having the treasure. And we wonder, I've kept all this myself. Why don't I have more? We need to ask ourselves, do we really need more? Or do we need to be better with what we have? 
Do we need more? Do we want more? Do we need to have what we have? We, we need to understand. Are we looking at our life? Are, are we misusing credit? Are we stingy and greed? Are, are we being impulsive or hasty? Are we having a lack of self-control and discipline? Are, are we lazy? Are we indulgent? Are we cheating and fraudulent? Because all of these are serious and theological issues when it comes to what we have held dear, what has been entrusted to us. Now, with that being said, would you stand and rise as we get to where we are in the text today from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to be reading the first nine verses. This is going to be uh, because chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians deals with giving. We're going to be in here for a while, so I hope you don't wander away over the next couple weeks. But I want to just set this tone as Paul does. Paul speaking to the churches in Corinth. Powered by the Holy Spirit, he says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability, and even beyond their ability, of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I am not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, for your sake He became poor so that by His poverty you might become rich. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today we've opened Your Word. And while the subject may be something that many of us are interested in and some of us take issue with, I pray that we would see Your grace that abounds, Your generosity that overflows, and that we as Your children would know that this is brought about for our good and to bring You glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. So we're here in the Scripture and we're wanting to show what it says, what it means, how it applies, and how we must follow. Because when that happens, that's where life change happens. And, and we've been looking at these letters of First and Second Corinthians that were written by the author, the Apostle Paul. But we know that the Bible was not just human authors. It's the Holy Spirit inspiring these human authors in their specific time and place. And so the Apostle Paul is writing these letters corresponding back and forth around AD 56, to the church at Corinth. While he's about a thousand miles away in Ephesus, he's writing back and forth, answering their questions, corresponding to them, and helping them to have their eyes open, to be alert, because this church had drifted away for so long um, from a, a desire to fully know and live out their faith in light of what Jesus had done for them. They were living out a faith, But in light of what Jesus had done, they were not following after Him. They were following after different patterns. And Paul is showing them what that correct way looks like. And in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about how 
God has entrusted them as stewards to his ministry of reconciliation. That's a lot of big words, a lot of syllables there. And sometimes I have trouble with syllables. I'll be very honest. I'm from Mississippi. And I can even say that with the right syllables. I don't say Mississippi. It's Mississippi because there are four S's in the word and, and, and uh, four I's. Um, but we need to know that even though these sound really big, they don't need to be terrifying words. Having a ministry of reconciliation entrusted to you means that God has graciously gifted you with a kindness out of His generosity to meet the need of our great charity. Charles Spurgeon says, I have a great need for Christ. But he says, but I have a great Christ for my need. And that is a beautiful picture of God's charity that we're all in a desperate need for Him and God has supplied us with that need. But He's also not only supplied us but He's entrusted us that with what He has supplied us, He's also entrusting us to let it go to others. Let it be carried to others. Let it serve others. Let it declare Jesus to others. And here, Paul is talking about these different acts of grace and what it means to respond to God in the very practical and obedient ways of your life. So today we're going to ask the question, what does the Scripture bring forward as fundamental, what are some central, fundamental elements on this matter of grace and generosity and how they partner together? Well, let's look at them really quickly. We're going to see some fundamentals of grace-shaped generosity. Not just generosity because you have it or, or anything like that, but something that's shaped by the grace that God has given us. Paul wrote, first of all, in verse 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I, want, I need you to hear this, I need you to behold this, I need you to take this into account about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. So fundamental number one that we need to see is that grace-shaped generosity begins and is propelled by God's grace. It, it, it cannot start anywhere else. Anything else is a self-righteous, self-activity, an attempt on our own part. But when something reflects and is, and is evident of God's grace in our life, it, it changes the scenario. It makes it less about us and more about Him. And Paul writes, I want you to know about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. I want you to know that what they have done is not because they're so cool or so hip or so great or, or they made me feel so nice or, or they're so encouraging. It's that what they did was all because the grace of God had richly saturated that place and they knew it. They knew it. What are the churches of Macedonia? These would be the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Um, you read about Philippian, Philippi with the Philippians and Thessalonica with the Thessalonians. Berea you can find uh, in the book of Acts. And it said that whenever Paul and his compatriots had gone to the city of Berea, that they were actually even more noble than the people of Thessalonica because they searched every day in the Scriptures to see with whether or not what Paul and his compatriots were saying was true. They actually took time to study the Word for themselves. So there's this great activity. But the problem was... That even though God's grace was there, all other viewpoints would say, ah, that, that place probably doesn't have a lot to give. In other words, if you were planting a church that you wanted to be successful and you wanted to be bountiful and you wanted to 
to have just the, the richest and the bee's knees of stuff, you probably would not go to the Macedonian province to Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea at that time. It just wasn't a rich area. You would go to a place like Corinth, though, one of the third largest cities in the known world at the time, where there was trade of all kinds. And so Paul is telling the people in Corinth, I want you to think about what happened in Macedonia. And not because the Macedonians are so great, but because God's grace was evident. And, and when you come to this area of generosity, you cannot forget that. And secondly, you, when he talks about grace-shaped term, uh, generosity, a second fundamental is that problematic scenarios, they are beneath it. In other words, excuses are beneath grace-shaped generosity. That you can start mounting them all you want, start stacking the, the justification, if you will. But here's what was going on. It says that during a severe trial, verse 2, brought about by affliction. Now, we don't know what this was. We don't know if this was famine or this was persecution. But their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So in other words, even though they were facing severe trial, whether it was famine or persecution, we don't really fully know. Some believe it to be the per, one of the early persecutions, meaning that those that had family ties, they lost their family ties. They couldn't go home anymore because they had trusted Christ. Those that had um, some kind of income lost their jobs because their employer said, um, I'm not going to allow someone that has this type of faith to work for me. You can do without and be on the streets. That's where I'd rather you be. By the way, that's a warning to us as Christians that uh, it, it, is, it is okay if you hire someone that may not be a Christian to work for you. And you would say, you know, I'd rather display my kindness to someone who, who does not have any means but has the skill to complete the job than I would someone that has tons of means but they just share my faith. Um, help somebody out if they can be of service. Now, if someone is negligent and abusive of your kindness, there's, that's a whole other thing for an employee relationship. But just putting that out there, these people were cut off because of their faith. We as Christians have experienced that in our history. It's not a pretty sight. And they were facing extreme pro- poverty. So in other words, they could have said, you know what? Don't talk to us about giving. We're broke. We're suffering. I don't know if I have enough food to provide the meal for my family. Don't talk to us about this subject. But what happened is Paul actually didn't have to talk to him about this. That they began earnestly begging to take part. We're going to see that in a moment. But what I present to you is this. That a fundamental of grace-shaped generosity says, Yeah, God, I'm thankful for your grace, but I see I got these problems. Sorry. My problems are bigger than you. What? That's nowhere found in the Bible. It might be in the book of second opinions, but it is not in the Bible. Third fundamental. Not only is it propelled by God's grace, this grace-shaped generosity, not only are problematic scenarios beneath it, that they are able to be overcome, but philanthropy becomes evident. When you see verse 2, it says their abundant joy, not like, no abundant joy and their and and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part you see philanthropy becomes evident and not philanthropy because they can say well i got big checks i can write them and that's it i'm done 
But you saw that there was a joy to be able to take part and help. And it overflowed in spite of, in spite of extreme poverty. Their philanthropy, their desire to give, their desire to say, we want to take part. It was evident. Paul's saying, I'm testifying to you. This was something tangible. It wasn't like, oh, there's a few people. No, it was something that was happening in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, and all these places that it shouldn't happen. And it was becoming evident. Because generosity has a way of, while we're, our goal is to not let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. That is the, the, the command so that we don't make this about our own pride. Philanthropy has a way of becoming known. That you may not know the exact person, but you know someone is given. Someone is doing something amazing. And Paul is saying this was taking place in the church. A fourth fundamental that we see is not only that it's propelled by God's grace and not only that, only that problematic scenarios are beneath it and not only that philanthropy becomes evident, but a fourth fundamental is that they had a privilege in taking part. Grace-shaped generosity says, I cannot wait to embrace my role. I can't wait to take part and say, I'm a part of that. I'm just going to a little side note here. That's one reason I'm so thankful that that our church and that the churches I've been able to serve in are, are Southern Baptist. Not that Southern Baptists never do anything wrong, not that we never have anything wrong, but I will tell you there is evidence that Southern Baptists work together to say we get to take part and do our part. When you open your bulletin each week, you get to see those stories. We take part in that because every week something that we give goes towards those things. We get to take part in seeing people fed overseas. We get to take part in seeing people helped after tornadoes and, and tragedies. We get to take part in seeing people get educated and, 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 and have their, their education so they can go out and serve. We get to take part in helping all kinds of incredible needs. Churches being built. And then we get to take part in what's going on not only in our walls, but just beyond them. We're very good or should be about giving especially when we know by paul says when it came to this privilege of taking part they were giving proportionate to their ability proportionate to their ability now i know that the big lesson that biblically the precedent is set in the book of exodus to be tithers that's the command. That's the starting point, if you will. And, and that is the command that's set in the Old Testament that we should give. But what the New Testament tells us is that that's not the limit. That's not the limit. That should be your starting point. But what you should aim to give is, God, help me give according to my ability. Help me give proportionate to my ability. That's, that's a sign of grace that what I have that's in me, help it not be so absorbed with me. But help me be proportionate to my ability. Yes, help me take care of my family. Yes, help me take care of my debt. But where I can, help me to give according to my ability. Let it be sacrificial, just as the Corinthians, as the Macedonians were. And, and Paul is in, informing the Corinthians that this is their goal. They were giving even beyond their ability. And it was of their own accord. 
It's voluntary. It's uncoerced. They had an earnest desire to take part. They considered it a privilege to give. They were enthusiastic. It says, it says that according of their own accord, verse 4, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. Me and Stephan have been talking a little bit about um, offering time here at church. and Just, just conversations we've had. And, uh, you know, we're talking about how much time do we need to designate towards that in the worship. We also we know it's an act of worship. We're trying to figure out the best balance and that kind of thing. But wouldn't it be cool if we just had a box and everybody was like racing to be the first to give? Wouldn't that be awesome? Like having that desire. Wouldn't it be cool to see something like uh, what took place in the book of Exodus whenever the people have came out of the promised land and, and, and they had had nothing before. I mean, they had their animals and their livestock that was basically for their family needs, but that was it. They, they were slaves, deprived of anything economic, anything political, anything spiritual, anything social, anything cultural, anything traditional. They were deprived of that. They were slaves, okay? But they were able to walk out of Egypt, plundering Egypt, having all these riches. They could have been like, you know what? I've never had anything before. This is mine. This is my nice stuff. I like my nice stuff. Stay away from my nice stuff. But when it came to the offering, whenever they were building this tabernacle, a place where God's presence and glory was going to dwell so that they could be a symbol to the nations. Guess what Moses had to do? And the workers. The workers had to go to Moses and said, you got to tell the people to stop bringing stuff to give. Not because it's junk or something that was like from you know the Clinton administration, but because it was so good and they had too much to deal with. Moses had to tell them to stop giving because they didn't have enough to do with it. They couldn't do anything else with it. And this is where you see this reflection. I'm going to tell you, that is not um, pulling and, and, and trying to pull teeth and kick them in the rear to get them to give. This is a grace shaped in us. Only God's grace can move a heart like that. That can't be something that's coerced. And nor should it be. Hear me, nor should it be. If it's like pulling teeth to try to get people to give, then that is not worship. That is not reflecting generosity. And so they considered it a privilege in taking part. Verses 3 and 4. A fifth fundamental is the product of their worship. It says, it says that this was more than we had hoped. It was not just as we had hoped. Like Paul says, you know, everywhere I've gone, I've been telling people that we're taking up a collection that's going to the people in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was like the, the epicenter of Christian activity. The church was born there. and But there, because there were thousands that were there on that day of Pentecost and thousands after they had become to Christ after it, there were thousands of people that were in poverty because thousands of people were cut off from their family. They were cut off from their work. They were cut off from their home. They were cut off from any... Security they had. And they had immense needs. There were widows who, who their family says, we're no longer going to take care of you. There were orphans that said, you know what? Sorry. You're no longer my child. And so Paul is collecting towards this giving. And so he had this hope everywhere he went. But he says they were giving more. And this is why. Because it was a product of their worship. They understood as a product of the words to first give themselves to the Lord. And when you give yourselves to the Lord, say, here am I, send me. All that I have is yours. All that I know of me, I give to all that I know of you. And I don't put conditions on any of this because you didn't put conditions on me when you went to the cross. So it's there. And so Paul's writing says, I'll be honest, my mind's a little perplexed about this. I've never seen anything like this. 
It is all to the glory of God because they were not giving themselves to us, but they were giving themselves to us through God's will. That, that whenever the money came to us, it was, it was because they were first falling after the Lord's will. And we just happened to be in the right place for this to take place. He says, so Paul urged Titus to keep doing that there in Corinth, that, that this is expected everywhere, to, that just to complete this act of grace, to follow after God's will and support of God's mission. The sixth fundamental is that it parallels with other virtues and practices. So Paul goes on to say, all right, now you Corinthians, you are people that I know, you excel in everything. And he's not being facetious here. He says, you have great faith. And, and now I'm seeing it being redirected to the Lord. You have great articulate speech of the, of the scriptures. You, you have knowledge and, and in all diligence, you, you, you've returned to us. We talked about this in the, in chapter seven when he's talking about they long for Paul again. They wanted to reestablish that relationship. He says, but here's what I'm asking you to do. Just as these are virtues and practices that should be a part of every believer's life, that we should strive after these things. We should never be like, well, sometimes my faith's not strong enough, so I don't know if I can be in that role, or I don't, I don't have enough knowledge and I have speech. Okay, that may be where you are, but don't stay there. Excel, move forward, get to know, and see what God can do. But just as you grow in those parallels and, vir- and those virtues and practices, parallel that with this grace. Excel in this labor and act of grace. That giving isn't some other thing. It's just as much as importance as all these other aspects. A seventh fundamental is the proof of genuine love. This is where Paul brings the big boom, though. Where he brings the big boom. He says, I am not saying this is a command. Wait a minute, this is not a command. No. He says, rather by a means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. I'm not going to give you this as another command. I'm going to tell you to test the command that Jesus already has given. That you would love one another just as He loved you. So you must love one another. So this act of giving is not just some command that you can check off your spiritual list, but it's saying, I have proof that I know, embrace, embody, and reflect the love that Jesus had for me. And I'm going to do it by loving Him. I'm going to do it by loving the church. And I'm going to do it by loving the cause. We live in a day where everybody wants to join a cause. I want to be known by my cause, my my flag that I champion. I'm really big about this cause, fill in the blank. And we'll go out of our way for that cause. Well, what about the greatest cause ever? The one that caused the, the King of Heaven to step down to this earth. What, are we championing that cause? To, that He made redemption available to us so that we may make redemption available and known to others. That's why we give and have grace-shaped generosity. And lastly, fundamental number eight, the picture of the Gospel giver. He says, look at this. Think about this. For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that this was an act of grace. It was an act of His unmerited favor towards you. That though, though He was rich, for your sake He became poor so that by His poverty you might become rich. So whenever we give, what we're doing is we're reflecting and giving a picture of, of Jesus to the world. The riches of Jesus. 
the incarnate, almighty, cosmos-creating, universe-speaking God. Rich. Owning the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the one that stepped out of heaven and had to deal with dirt on his feet. Probably smelled like sheep and fishermen. And he had to lay his head on a rock sometimes. Because he didn't have a bed. He had to go to sleep under the stars. Sometimes he was so exhausted he had to take a nap in the back of the boat. And this King of Heaven... In that poverty, if that wasn't enough, he went to the punishment of the cross. A few years ago, I was uh, at a camp in Louisiana. And uh, it was hot and sticky. And, you know, I don't like hot and sticky. I don't like humid at all. That's why I left Mississippi. And one reason, not, not the only reason. Of course, there's the God thing. Um, but... Leaving away from the humidity was kind of like the bonus. But I was there at a camp, and and it was a mission camp, and and the whole focus for that mission camp was to help people in poverty areas to to get their their, um, house kind of sealed up so that um, they wouldn't have excruciating power bills, um, so that maybe their air would work and that kind of thing. And it's usually people from really low-income homes or fixed-income homes. And and sometimes we go in there and... uh, one of the houses we went into, it was just deplorable. It just was. It was. It was. It was sad. Um, and I'm not trying to cause pity on anybody or anything like that, but it just you just felt like, wow, what some people have to live through and go through. It's 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 difficult to kind of wrap your head around that. And I was there for three hours that day. And that bothered me. From my little middle class kind of background, I, I didn't. I mean, I had to have a lot, but it wasn't. Comparison was immense. Just looking across the dividing line, and I was there for three hours. Jesus was here for thirty something years, and he went to the cross. That's the way he ended up. That's what he took on. And the difference between what I experienced in those three hours and what Jesus experienced for 30 and a half years, is incomparable. But that's what He was willing to take for us. So that He could entrust us with a gift. That we might be made rich. And I don't want to mix words here. That is not prosperity gospel rich where you name it and claim it and next thing you know you're going to check in the mail and all your debts are going to be washed away. That is not the gospel of the Bible. That is a counterfeit meant to coax and fool the hearts and minds of people. But the gift of Jesus is one that changes our heart. It gives grace. It fits us for heaven. It redeems us. While we are unworthy, it makes us worthy to be in His presence. And this is the picture of generosity to the nth degree. And if we are meant to re- have the image of God restored in our life that whenever He redeemed us, He took what was broken and marred and separated and He redeemed it and fixed His image upon us. When we see the image of His generosity 
and grace on the cross, how much more so should it be reflected in the lives of those who say, I'm a child of God. I bear the image of the Lord Jesus. You see, we can make giving a tooth and nail issue and and grind it out that you ought to be given this much and this is why you should. But the Apostle Paul didn't go that direction. He did say it's important because it is. It is a biblical command. And there's commands that set the precedence. But overall, the real reason is that we follow the generous of generous The one who is overtly generous than we could ever be. And now we're meant to reflect Him. So let's not be negligent on that. And understand that when we reflect Him, when we communicate Him, when we handle our stewardship, our trust, has been placed in our hands. God receives the glory. But great things happen to bring about our good too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today I, I just ask that you would um, be with us as we respond to you, trust in you. Help us, God, to reflect you. And uh, may you receive glory in this moment in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed this time. We're just going to have a small time of, of invitation and that means a, a moment for you to respond. I, I don't know where you are with the Lord Jesus this morning. You could have come in this room and be completely separate from Him, not knowing Him as your Lord and Savior, and today needing peace. And I want to tell you that today you can trust in the Lord Jesus. It means placing your trust. It means admitting that you have a need for Him, believing that He is who He says He is, and confessing Him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe there's other areas that you need to trust And seek after the Lord's will. But whatever it is, during this time of response, I pray that you would follow God's direction. I'm going to be down here at the front. And should you need someone to talk to or pray with, I'll gladly do that to help you take that next step. But you follow that next step with the Lord as the music plays.